I remember my introduction to carnivals, fun, slightly dangerous appearing rides that strangely were also very expensive. Greasy, healthy, well not so healthy actually, just greasy, wonderful tasting food. Lines that stretch seemingly for a five or six year old miles long waiting to ride said rickety slightly dangerous rides. My first exposure to a carnival was when I was with some friends. I was five or six years old, and we were waiting what seemed like an eternity to get on a ride, but in in reality, it was probably no more than five or seven minutes. But as the line kept marching towards the entrance to the ride, I noticed that other kids around my age were having to stand up next to like a board, and most kids were getting to pass through, but some were getting told they could not ride the ride. So as I got closer to that board, I, I, I prepared myself, Stephen, you've got to get as tall as you can right here, because you know those boards. You must be this tall to ride. So I stood up next to the board, and I tried to stretch myself as much as I could, even getting on my tippy toes when the guy wasn't looking. And no matter what I tried, I was not tall enough. And he looked at me and said, sorry, kid, can't ride the ride. Dejectedly, I walked away while others got to go ride the ride. I look back upon that now and think that is such an illustration for our hearts, our world, our condition today. We have a mindset. We must be this tall. We must accomplish this much in order to pass through. If you're applying for a job, You list the qualifications, the skills that you have that you think will make you desirable to that possible employer. If you're seeking to sell something to a possible client or or customer, you want to present why you or why your company are going to be able to satisfy their needs as a customer and do so in a manner that meets all of their needs both uh, for the product as well as cost needs and whatever other considerations may exist. I regularly tell uh, uh, prospective couples who are doing premarital counseling that one aspect of, 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 of preparing for and entering into marriage is preparing to be let down. You see, in that dating, in that phase where you are, are growing in relationship and preparing for marriage, you have a way of trying to build yourself up as an attractive or as a possible future mate to the one that you are dating. And then you get married and you see how it all comes crumbling down. The carefully crafted facade, the foundation has been ripped out. But how much this is our mindset, in Luke 18, Jesus does something that is entirely countercultural. Surprise, surprise, he regularly does this. You see, when it comes to our relationship with God, he does not say, he does not lift the bar really high and say, in order to know God, in order to be right with him, you must stretch yourself, you must have all of these accomplishments to reach this level, and then you are able to go ride the ride, or you're able to enter into the temple, or able to enter relationship with him. No, Jesus actually doesn't lift the bar really high. He lowers the bar to incredibly small depths. And he actually says, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be entirely humbled, emptied of any notions of thinking you can accomplish or earn your way into my kingdom 
and you must receive it in total dependence upon me. What I'm going to argue for you from Luke 18 is that God's mercy is for those who know they can't help themselves. Let me say that again. God's mercy is for those who know they can't help themselves. This is the antithesis to the common saying, God helps those who, who help themselves. No, God's mercy is for those who know they can't help themselves. But don't take my word for it. Let's read from Luke 18, verses 9 to 17. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called, to them, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So God's mercy is for those who know they can't help themselves, and there's two things we see here, two ways that we're going to hold up this argument. First, in this parable from verses 9 to 14, do not marvel at your righteousness. Do not marvel at your righteousness, but run to Christ for mercy. Jesus tells this parable, and look at who it's addressed to in verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And the parable has two figures, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees were known for often exhibiting quite commendable behavior or quite commendable character. You see the Pharisee, he knows this. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And he even has the audacity to look at another guy in temple and say, I'm not like that guy. And they were religiously zealous. He said, I fast twice a week. And in Jesus' day, in the Old Testament law, the people of Israel were only commanded to fast one day a year. But no, this guy, he fasts twice a week. He gives tithes of all that he gets. In contemporary vernacular, he was an upstanding citizen who volunteered at church, who gave generously, and his life was not messy. Tax collectors, on the other hand, they were shameful. In Jesus' day in Israel, it was occupied by this Roman Empire. And so Rome would often commission local figures to collect taxes from the citizens uh, in the lands that they occupied. 
So if Rome, uh, if the empire made a deal or made a contract with a tax collector who, let's say they tasked him with yearly raising a million dollars in taxes, tax collectors would then go around and start trying to collect or start enforcing these strong tax laws upon uh, the, fellow, the, the citizens. And oftentimes they would collect excess, in, in great excess of what Rome had dictated the tax fees would be, and the tax collectors would just keep it for themselves. What are you going to do? Are you going to attack me? I'm representing Rome. You, get, you, you come after me, the whole Roman Empire comes at, crashing down upon you. And probably the worst aspect of it all for tax collectors, once again, they were local figures who were contracted out working for Rome. These were fellow Israelites who in the eyes of their neighbors had sold out their own people for riches that could be found at the hands of Rome. Stealing from their neighbors as they extorted them in their taxes. So you have a Pharisee, you have a tax collector. And now you might think, okay, I see the smugness of the Pharisee, but let's be honest, Stephen, in the whole, I don't see anything wrong with this. This world would be better off if it had less extortion, less injustice, less adultery, less stealing like this tax collector had done. And you're right. But Jesus isn't raising alarms about the Pharisee's lack of morality. He's raising alarms about the Pharisee's heart. You see, the problem is the Pharisee believed his rightness or his justification before God was reliant upon his own morality. Simply said, another way, the Pharisee was his own Savior. Look at all the references to himself in verses 11 and 12. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. Why in verse 12? I fast twice a day. I give tithes of all that I get. He walks into, maybe even swaggers, saunters into the temple and says, God, I am not like all these other people. Aren't you glad to have me? He was his own Savior. But here's the dangerous aspect of the human heart that we would be woefully out of step with if we thought this was just something with the Pharisee. Self-righteousness in our hearts inevitably breeds contempt towards others. So he says, I do all this and I'm not like that guy. Thank God I am not like them. I'm not pointing at you guys over here. It's a (laughs) metaphor. You might not think you have a problem with trying to be your own savior, so to say, but do you ever think to yourself, Lord, thank you for not making me like fill in the blank. Thank you that I am not like those godless progressive Democrats that are ruining this country. Thank you that I'm not like those backward science-denying hypocritical Republicans. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the rich, the elites, who all they do is to keep the little guy under their thumb. Selfishness selfishness and greed is destroying and robbing other people of of the chance to get a leg up in this world. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like good-for-nothing people who won't work or have no desire to make anything of themselves despite being given repeated chances. You could go on and on. Or even this. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like those self-righteous moral snobs who think they are a lot more impressive than they really are. There's an unbelievable genius to how Jesus diagnoses hearts, is there not? Jesus is actually showing us with this Pharisee that the careful record of your righteousness that you would present as exhibit A of your morality 
will actually be used to condemn you on cross-examination as it is revealed that this is where your hope lied. Why is this so? Because if you, don't, if, if, if you are trusting in your self-righteousness, you don't need Jesus. You are your own Savior. So what is Jesus getting at as far as the appropriate posture of our hearts before God? Well, look at the tax collector in verse 13. The tax collector standing far off. Look at this. The the Pharisee walks right in. The tax collector will barely enter. He's not even lifting up his eyes to heaven. But look, hear him. He's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The weight of his transgression before God is weighing him down. You cannot help but observe the stark difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, one thing that struck me as I prepared, as I worked through this text, I guess last week, is um, something a guy named Ronald Wallace pointed out about the Pharisee that is absolutely staggering. The Pharisee had beautiful religious feelings when he went to the temple. He felt right with God. He felt right with life. So comforting were his religious feelings that he felt sure that he was in the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, his heart told him so. But his heart told him a lie. Dear church, do we enter into worship each week? Lord, thank you that I am not like those who do not worship you. We get whatever list we have where we would hold ourselves in superiority over others and then have the audacity to praise God when in fact the disposition of our hearts must be, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You know, the thing that causes this parable one thing that causes it to land on us, there's, there's this moving sense of beauty to this. Um, at, at the temple, as these events would unfold, the people that are hearing this would know that, that at the temple regularly, twice a day, there would be sacrifices that would be made. There would be offerings of atonement for sins. So the tax collector is, in a sense, crying out to God in the corner as he sees atonement for sins, and he assumes that, okay, it cleans up whatever 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 needs to be cleaned up on all these other people, but I'm a lowly tax collector. And, and it's like he's crying out, this word have mercy for me is, is, is very close, it, it can also be translated atonement. And so he's like, God, is there atonement for me? And maybe you feel that way. Like somehow the love of God is able to drop down and get the people that reach up to a certain standard, but you're so low, yeah, you're like, yeah, I'm a, I, I could hang out with the tax collectors. And you think there's no way that atonement reaches down to me. But think about this. The one who is telling this story, who's seeking to address the self-righteousness of his audience's hearts, he is the one who would become atonement for our sins. Is there atonement for me? Is there mercy for a sinner such as I? Yes. Yes. Look to Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So how do I take hold of Jesus by faith? 
How do I come to his cross and find that there, yes, there is atonement for me, full and free? You empty the spiritual resume. You don't try to cling to it like a buoy that you think will help you, keep, help, help you stay afloat. You recognize it's a sinking ship that will only take you down with it. You trust solely and, and fully and completely in Jesus and Jesus alone as the one who is able to accomplish your righteousness before God. You know, this is, this is very difficult for us. It's very difficult to be lowered to this level and to stop trying to measure ourselves up, particularly in a context like ours. We are all quite wealthy and compared with the rest of the world. We have degrees upon degrees upon degrees. We live in a beautiful place. We are, we, are, we, are, we are smart. We are technologically advanced. We have so much that is going for us. We have incredible knowledge. You, you, you pull up your smartphone and you have knowledge at your fingertips that people even 50 years ago would have a lifetime of never understanding or never knowing. We have great accomplishments. We celebrate uh, 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 excellence and greatness. We revere those who do hard things, who accomplish incredible things. And in all of these things, Jesus says, you must get low. Like the tax collector. Not like the Pharisee. Remember the words to verse 3 of Rock of Ages? You might look at it in your bulletin. It's the, it was a song of preparation this morning. The musicians played before the service began. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the, thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, that, that's, that's smelly. Like that's old language smelly. Foul. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you would like to know what it means, or perhaps how, okay, what are next steps? How do I come to this Jesus? How do I lower myself? Forsake the pharisaicalism that might exist in my heart and try to become like the tax collector. I would love to speak with you after our service down in the lobby. Feel free to grab me and we can discuss this further. Listen to Jesus, how he concluded this parable in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do not marvel at your own righteousness. Run to Christ for mercy. Secondly, we see this exhortation to do not receive the kingdom of God with conditions, but receive it like a child. Verses 15 to 17. Remember, Jesus is telling us to be wary of trying to measure up to a standard that we believe will earn us righteousness into the kingdom of God, will earn us acceptance before God. And this is so prevalent, right? Once again, you might not think, okay, I don't look at other people and say, and, and, and say okay, Lord, thank you for not making me like them, or thank you that... I'm not like them, but do you think to yourself ever, Lord, you know, I've done a pretty good job serving you. I, it'd be really nice if you would answer this prayer that is burdening my heart right now. Or anything where we start to try to claw our way up and tell God how it ought to be. No, do not receive the kingdom of God with conditions. Receive it like a child. In fact, you must be completely humbled 
What greater example of absolute total humility is a small child, an infant, as verse 15 says, who can do nothing for herself and is totally reliant upon another? Look at verse 15. Now they're bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. You know, as, as you read this, you have to understand, culturally in Jesus' day, children were viewed in a much different light than they are in many ways in our day. Frankly, they were quite insignificant. Infant mortality rates were high. Children had no, uh, no important rights or, or accomplishments. They, they couldn't offer anything of value or contribution to society. They had no negotiating power. They did not have financial uh, 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 maneuverability. They, they, they did not have business acumen. They really were of little significance until they reached an age that they could work. And so, you, what you have here is you have perhaps some young mothers who are bringing their children who might face uh, difficult odds in life of even reaching adulthood, that He might touch them, that He might bless them. The disciples see it and they say, hey, this guy is too important for the kids, okay? And look at verse 16, Jesus called to them and said, no, 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 let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now this is a cute story, but what does it mean? The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector seems fairly understandable, the difference in the disposition of their hearts. But what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child or like an infant? Well, first let's consider this idea of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? You, Jesus says you received this. Well, it, it is this, this think, of it through the, I, think of it through three ways of looking at the kingdom of God. A change in identity, a new, uh, a new king that you serve, and a, and, a, and a difference in allegiance. So a change in identity is when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus or when they become a Christian, they are, as Scripture says, they are brought to new life. They receive a new birth. And so they, they still have the same name. They still have the same body. They still have the same makeup. They still have the same past, the same background. But in, in one sense, Jesus gives spiritual new birth to them where they receive a new heart. And now their identity is no longer around, okay, what, 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 is my, what am I going to say my life will be? But now they have a new heart in which they are serving a new king. And that king is Jesus or God himself. And so the kingdom of God is made up of citizens who have been brought into the kingdom of God through new birth, and now their, their focus or their, their purpose, their allegiance is serving this king who reigns over them. And so now they have new priorities, and you have new responsibilities as followers of Jesus. But all of this, Jesus is saying, you, if this is the idea of the kingdom of God, then you must receive it like a child A child simply receives something. They cannot earn it. They cannot buy it. They cannot negotiate their way into it. All they can do is receive it, and that is what he's getting at. It really humbles our ideas of what do I do to enter the kingdom of God when, in fact, Jesus says, no, you just receive it. And no objections, no power of your own to bring it to yourself. You receive it in total humility. I'm going to use my own daughter, Caroline, as an example. I don't know where she is right now. I assume she's in this building. I assume that Amanda has her. Caroline does not go anywhere without Amanda or me. She stumbles around some, but a little baby has to be carried here, there, everywhere. But she is taken wherever we want to take her. She goes down for naps whenever we deem that it is right. 
We take her to the doctor. We pick out what she's going to have for breakfast or for lunch or for dinner. She doesn't get a vote. She is entirely submitted to what mom and dad think is best. This took an unfortunate turn for her over Halloween when it was determined that what was best for her was an adorable little pink bunny costume that she had to put on. She actually went along with it pretty well. It was difficult for her mother, who is not a fan of the movie A Christmas Story, when a number of people remarked, hey, it looks like the pink bunny costume from A Christmas Story. But Caroline received this. She did not have a vote. The one who receives the kingdom of God does so with no reservations, no saying, okay, I'll become a Christian, but I'm going to have to draw the line here, okay? God, I'm on board with A, and and B, I I can get along with, but respectfully, I must object to C. This is admittedly difficult. The kingdom of God is significantly out of step with our culture on a host of issues. Take what the Bible reveals and teaches about sexuality and marriage, it is wildly out of step with our culture. The one who has received the kingdom of God, do you trust God in His Word, willing to walk in obedience to Him, even if you feel like the, the positions of God's Word make you stand out like a pink bunny? But are you willing to walk in obedience to Him, not like, uh, or are you not like a small child, but more like a teenager who believes that you know better than your parents? Subtly telling God, okay, I'll live in your house, I'll eat your food, I'll receive the benefits of being your child, but on this subject, frankly, I think I know better than you. This happens in a whole host of issues in our lives. Will we receive the kingdom of God or do we object like teenagers? The kingdom of God is significantly out of step with our sense of our own autonomy, our our individualism. Jesus claims total authority over anyone and everyone who would dare to follow him. He refuses to be an accessory to your life. He must be the aim and absolute authority over your life. Once again, you have received entry into the kingdom of God. This is a new citizenship, a new identity. You're not a citizen of the kingdom of God sometimes and then a citizen of the kingdom of this world other times. To that end, Jesus gets final authority over your hopes, your plans, your dreams, your goals for yourself, for your family. He has authority over the calendar. He commands obedience to him and commitment to his church. What he's showing us here and what he's showing his disciples as he tells them they must receive the kingdom of God like a child is the one that who comes to Jesus like an adult and says, okay, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, what you're saying. You make some good points about human nature. Yeah, Christianity helps me to see the world in a different light that I think is more compelling than other worldviews. But I must object on these other ways. I can do these things for you in service to your church, but how about we reach this agreement where we're okay in this way and I just object in these other ways? Dear one, no no matter how reasonable this sounds, I must say following Christ with conditions is actually just following yourself with a Christian rubber stamp on it. Jesus says, no, you must come to me like an infant. An infant receives that which mom or dad gives, is carried wherever mom or dad take her. And look at verse 17. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. And it is at this point in my, prepara- in, in my preparation for this sermon where I thought to myself, now how in the world do I land that plane? How in the world do I bring this in in a way that, that, that will, will, will have, a, have a sense of being compelling, an, an attractiveness to the kingdom of God, let's say? 
Well, I, I thought about it like this. You will only change citizenship or trust in your citizenship in one kingdom moving to another if you believe that it is advantageous to go from one kingdom to another. Think of the example of immigrants moving to our country or migrants or refugees moving to our country. They are not leaving home countries to come here because they think it's better in the home country. No, they come to a place where they think there are more opportunities, where they think that, that things are better than what they are leaving. So how do I make the kingdom of God try to look better than the kingdom that you might try to stay in? Here's how. when, When this dawned on me, it made total sense. Like a child, you will only allow yourself to be carried about, moved around, totally surrendered to what? Someone you absolutely trust. You will only become like a child if you totally trust the one you're surrendering before. So Jesus, the one who says this to us, If we step back and consider Him, He is the one who became like a child. Actually became a child when He entered our world as a newborn babe. His trust in His heavenly Father was unwavering as He navigated life all the way to what? His cross. Totally submitted before the heavenly Father. So that when you or I cry out, is there atonement for me? Jesus stands before us with his cross having accomplished our redemption and says, yes, there is. And if he has provided your atonement, then you must become like a child to receive it. But here's what Jesus' work shows us. Jesus' work demands that we do an honest evaluation of ourselves. And what he does is he shows before us all the ways in which we see the the standards that rest over us. You must be this tall to qualify for the love, the acceptance, the, the, the blessing of whatever it is that you want to be loved, accepted, and blessed by. You must be this tall in order to have peace, in order to have security, in order to have rest. You must accomplish these things in order for your life to have value, in order for your life to have purpose, in order for your life to be something worth getting out of bed for each morning. And Jesus stands before you with all of these things, all of these mindsets in our world that demand that we make something of ourselves in order to have purpose or in order to have value or in order to be accepted. And he says, no, I don't raise the standard until you get to this point. I lower it and tell you, I have come and you will taste and see the grace of no one less than the Son of God if you will be humbled enough to receive it. Everything in life screams you must measure up. You must reach the standard. Everything within you is wired to believe that you have to do something in order to obtain the sense of value, the sense of purpose, in order to earn your salvation, whether it be found in love, whether it be found in accomplishment, whether it be found in, in the praise of those around you or the praise of adoring crowds that you want to find, that you want to uh, uh, find love through. And all such notions are wrong. 
You must not become great. You must become like the infant. You must become like the tax collector. Forsaking building up your spiritual resume before God and looking to Jesus' resume and by faith trusting in what He has done. Why is this so? God's mercy is for those who know they can't help themselves. 